Welcome, everybody. Hello, hello. This is Hear Her Sports, the podcast of long-form, intimate profiles of female athletes breaking boundaries, speaking up, and living with power and confidence. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. Today's guest is Dr. Kirsten Lauritsen, who is here to talk about the immune system and building resiliency. We are not focused on COVID, but as you will hear, it is certainly part of the backdrop of our conversation. What interests me is how interconnected everything is. I thought too about how the body is great at expressing that it's struggling, but not always in the most obvious manner. Kirsten talked about searching for the source of the symptoms. Some things to listen for are how the gut is involved in pretty much everything, the importance of movement each day, how the male and female immune systems differ, and what you can do to build resiliency with the immune system this year, and all the time, because athletes are always stressing their systems. If after listening, you're interested in working with Dr. Kirsten, she can work remotely in many cases. Her links are in the show notes at hearhersports.com. I'm grateful to Kirsten for pulling together all the information that she did, so let's get to it. Today's guest is Dr. Kirsten Lauritsen, who is here to talk about the immune system since COVID isn't going anywhere anytime soon, but also because athletes need to think about the immune system with the added stress they take on with regular training. Dr. Lauritsen, also known as Dr. K, is a functional medicine practitioner in Wilsonville, Oregon. Her doctorate is in chiropractic, and she holds a master's in human nutrition and functional medicine. She is the founder of NW Functional Medicine, a healthcare clinic that incorporates massage, chiropractic, rehab, and functional medicine. She is also the founder of drkirsten.com, where she shares current research, articles, and recipes to encourage and inspire athletes to go further with their performance and health. Dr. K specializes in helping female athletes fix and prevent nutrient deficiencies so they can optimize their performance, longevity in sport, reduce risk of injury, and promote a healthy body. She is also a triathlete and is currently training for the Coeur d'Alene Ironman. Welcome, Kirsten. Thank you so much for being here. You know, I'm really looking forward to learning some things today for 2021, which it appears we all have big hopes for. So thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited as well. The immune system is such a, a crazy thing that I think we hear about a lot, but we don't get a lot of like the details. And so hopefully we'll get to touch on some of those things today. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Well, you know, let's just get an introduction to what you actually do, because, you know, even a quick look at your website shows that you do a really wide variety of things. So maybe talk about that a little bit. Sure. So one of the things that I do is chiropractic. But more importantly, I tend to put functional medicine as the main factor is what I do. So what functional medicine means is we basically take a person, whether they're suffering from a set of symptoms or if they're looking to more optimize their health and in this case, performance as well with athletes. What we want to do is we want to see how are each of the systems functioning. So like you have the immune system, for example, which is something we're going to talk about today. But you're also going to hear probably throughout this podcast that we're also going to talk a bit about the gut. We may also talk a little bit about some hormones. But the important thing that I want people to always remember is that even though a lot of the times what we hear about is each of these systems in like isolation, that's typically how we tend to treat them. We really want to think about how they are all affecting each other because like the whole body is connected, right? It's not just one thing <laughs> all the time. There's so many other factors and layers that are happening behind the surface. So if we can really get down to what might be causing those symptoms or 
what do we need to do in order to really optimize the system so that it has everything that it could possibly need to function at its absolute best? That's how I take functional medicine from like a, a chronic illness view to also a athlete optimizing performance view as a whole. So that's basically what I do. And who are your clients? Do they tend to be mostly athletes? Are you working mostly on the performance end or, or are there other people as well? Yeah, so I think as it got out that I practice functional medicine, I tend to get a wide range of people, but I do work a lot with people who are active and athletes just simply because they have a tendency to want to either get back to what they were doing or they just really want to continue doing what they're doing and they want to do it at a really high level. So yeah, it, it tends to be a little bit of a mix, but the majority are people who are focused on being active whether they are an elite or pro athlete to a person who just really wants to get to the gym and, you know, have a healthy lifestyle, it, it ranges. And what's the age bracket that you're dealing with? Oh, wow. I do treat some pediatrics. There's some kids that come in that are suffering from some symptoms that are kind of preventing them from doing what they really want to do. Acne and cystic acne being one of the major ones. And gut health. I'm seeing so many more gut-related issues with younger kids than I think maybe we've seen before, but then I also treat postmenopause and kind of higher up into senior ages. It just depends. Why are you seeing so much pediatric gut health issues? Well, we may actually talk about that today a little bit, but especially with the way that we tend to be raising kids now, the microbiome in the gut is something that is highly affected by the foods that we eat. It's affected by mom's bacteria, which is really interesting. And then based on that, that's kind of how our immune system gets started. But a lot of kids are also being exposed to different types of toxins. And they also are, you know, it's hard to say this, but they're also leading kind of higher stress lifestyles right now as well, especially with 2020 being one of the bigger ones. Uh, anyway, but we're seeing, I'm, and at least in my practice, a lot of kids are coming in with GI-related health issues. And so I think part of that has a lot to do with the lifestyle that they're basically being raised in. I could also mention, too, that as much as keeping things sanitized is such an important thing, there's also an impact that that can have on the bacteria that is within the body, so in the GI tract, but also on our skin. There's studies that have shown that if children are raised on farms, they are exposed to a lot more different types of bacteria and they tend to have, well, this particular study suggested that they tended to have healthier, um, healthier lives in the long term than kids who were kind of in this sanitized environment anyway. So there's just some things to think about. Well, you know, I had forgotten about, I think I read a study or some version of that study. That's so interesting. I hadn't thought about that in terms of COVID and all the hand washing we're doing. Yeah, and I'm not suggesting that we should not be doing that. You know, obviously, hand washing is super, super, super important. But I would suggest that the overuse of hand sanitizer is a possibility of a, some toxicity. There's some possible toxicity issues there, but also just living in sanitized environments isn't always the best thing. So hand washing is great. And then also just recognizing that we are designed to be exposed to different things. Obviously, viruses are their own category, but we're designed to be exposed to different types of pathogens and bacteria and stuff. And that's how we build our immune system. So we don't want a completely sterile environment. We're just understanding how that all works. And I think that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to do this podcast today so we could talk about that. <laughs> yeah. And I'm so glad that you mentioned stress. I do want to talk about that too. But before yeah. we start jumping the gun on too many things, you know, in an email that you sent in our little back and forth, you said, 
that you wanted to talk about the nitty gritty of how the immune system works. And I really love that, just getting sort of a basic understanding of that. So yeah. why don't you go ahead? Okay, let's do it. Okay, so I'm not going to get like, we're not going to do a huge biology class here because I don't want people to get bogged down, but <laughs> right. I'm going to try to keep this as a surface level kind of just basic understanding that if people can kind of listen to this and get through it, you'll have a better understanding of how your body really reacts with the things that come into your, you know, ecosphere um, and what your body does with it. So typically when you hear about the immune system, you hear two things. You hear about your innate immune system and you hear about your adaptive immune system. So your innate immune system, what we call innate immunity, basically refers to things that are nonspecific uh, defense mechanisms. So that looks like your skin. So they can be physical barriers, right? Like your skin, or also keep in mind, not just the outside of your skin, but your digestive tract is also skin. It's a barrier to the outside world. So there's some reasons why there are tight junctions in the GI tract because things aren't designed to go through them. But we will talk about that in a little bit as to why there are commonly issues with the GI tract and the skin um, and that physical barrier that leads to problems down the road. There's also in the innate immune system things like chemicals in the blood that help as well as some immune system cells that attack foreign cells in the body. So there's some with that with the innate immune system. And keeping in mind here too, that the innate immune system is not specific to any particular like bacteria or pathogen or virus for that matter, in the way that more of like the adaptive immune system is. Typically kind of, as I mentioned, the immune system usually depends on like a group of proteins or cells that take something from the outside and bring it into the cell so that it can then process it and get rid of it and destroy pathogens or invaders, right? That's the innate immune system. And then the adaptive immune system. So adaptive immunity refers to more like antigen specific immune response. So what that basically means is the adaptive immune system is basically more complex and the cells in the adaptive immune system learn. So they tend to be more specific. This is where you usually tend to hear of T cells and antibodies because first what must happen is you have to get exposed to something, so an antigen. It must first be processed and recognized. But then once an antigen has been recognized, so the adaptive immune system has launched a response and is building up what it needs to in order to attack that antigen. Once all that process happens and then you, you know, typically get over it, right, you now have something that's like a memory of that, which makes future responses a bit more efficient, but also specific. So we've heard of antibodies. We also have cells like T cells and those T cells, which are made and differentiated in the thymus. So you have a few different types of T cells, which then will translate into making the other cells like B cells. Again, I'm not going to get bogged down in this here, but I just want people to kind of become aware and I want listeners to just have heard this before to give them a bit of a basic understanding here. But T cells, they're differentiated in the thymus. And what that means is that they can have a very specific receptor for a particular fragment of that antigen that we just talked about. This is part of how we make those antibodies and eventually have that memory down the road. We also have what we would call cytotoxic T cells, which contain a surface protein called CD8. So stay with me here. I know we're getting a little bit technical, but essentially what these proteins and the cytotoxic T cells are designed to do is to destroy pathogen infected cells. So looking at like cancer cells and also foreign cells, which you would typically see in transplanted organs. And the reason why this is important is because Anything that's foreign to the body, there's a response usually that the body launches because of that. 
So just keep that in mind. And that is the reason why they put people on immune suppressants and things like that when they do, you know, organ transplants. So then also there's helper T cells. So remember, there's lots of different types, but helper T cells tend to contain a surface protein called CD4. Basically what that does, it helps to regulate the cellular and humoral immune system. So blood and all of that. It's actually very interesting, and we are going to talk a little bit about this, especially when it comes to the differences between men and women, but the CD4 and these helper T cells actually help with the regulation. Um, this regulation of that like reduces autoimmunity. And specifically when we talk about men and women and the kind of the differences in immune systems, women tend to have a little bit of higher rates in autoimmunity. And so, yeah, as we dive into that later on, we'll come back to how these helper T cells and CD4 and all of that, all those different types of proteins can be regulated and impacted by what's going on with just specific gender differences as well. Can I stop you for a second? Yeah. Do we know why women tend to get more autoimmune disease yeah. than men? Yeah, we do. Uh, do you want me to dive into it? <laughs> sure. Yeah, why yeah. not? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So one of the things that's interesting about women and men, and so female and male immune systems, is that research has basically shown repeatedly that women typically have a stronger immune response to infections than men. Actually, there are studies that go back to like as far as the 1940s, as far as I'm aware, that have basically suggested that women have uh, more capability of producing antibodies. The problem with that, though, and so here, bear with me, we'll get into how this affects autoimmune. So the reason that this is interesting is because, yes, we may have a little bit more of an effective resistance barrier to infections, but that also that hyperimmune response seems to be why women have a higher predisposition to autoimmunity because essentially what happens is that the body starts to launch an immune response and then it can just kind of get taken away and blown away from there which again we'll we'll talk about this too about how that starts in the GI tract and why that's such an important role but basically that that's part of the problem is that the with autoimmunity the body tends to start to attack itself right which is why we see things like Hashimoto's particularly affects the thyroid and the thyroid starts to sustain so much damage so much organ damage that at a certain point there's really just no coming back same with the GI tract and all of that it's autoimmunity is such a is such an interesting condition but anyway they're suggesting that the reason why women and men seem to differ is simply just because of this crazy immune response that women tend to uh, produce, which like evolutionary wise and makes sense, right? Like we are designed to carry babies. Not all of us will, but we are designed to do that. And from just that base understanding, we need to have the ability to fight off infections and pathogens because it might not just be us, right, that we are protecting. It could be another living being. So I think in, in that sense, there's some pretty strong differences in between, you know, male and female, just sex differences. But what we also have seen in some studies as well is that there seems to be changes not only between male and female fetuses, but also as the child tends to grow up. And then when puberty starts, which suggests that it's not just genetics and the fact that women have two X chromosomes and men have XY chromosomes, but also that there may be hormones and reproductive basis in there as well. So just some things to think about. And the reason why I really wanted to bring that up is just because 
when we are looking at this year, right, with COVID, and I'm not going to go into this very much, there's still so much that we don't know. And because of that, it's very difficult to talk about it, just simply because everything seems to change so quickly, you know, things we, you know, potentially said back in March, not all of them still apply. So I don't really want to go too deep into viruses and COVID specifically. But I do want to, you know, offer a a way to think about things here. And that's just when we have been looking at research in women and men, it's common to see a lot of research that's done mostly on male subjects because it doesn't require some of the controlling for the confounding factors of hormones. But in many ways, that's almost a detriment to women in in many ways. And you see this in, in athletic research all the time. Research on athletes is typically done in men and on yeah, male subjects. Absolutely. And it is something that I, um, there's lots of people who have done a lot of work in this area, but there's still far more to go. So as I continue on, there's also some things that we like, here's some examples, right, of where women tend to be a little bit different than men and how these immune systems seem to differ. So for example, about 80% of autoimmune disease occurs in females. So it's, it's quite a bit more. Um, and I think that's important to remember. That's a lot. Oh no, it's 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 quite a bit more. And and I think the hard thing about it too is that autoimmune diseases are newer to the scene. You know, a lot of the early environmental exposures of kids has a lot to do with the influence on the microbiome and on the bacteria in the gut, and that can have effects on your immune system. And so I think it's just something that we really need to be talking about a lot more about why it's so important that we support kids in their development of their microbiome and their bacteria because it's part of the basics for their immune system. And that goes for men men and women, right? For males and females. But then on the flip side, we see that men have almost a twofold higher risk of death from malignant cancer than women, which I think is very, very interesting. And that's partially because of how the immune responses react and are quite a bit different. Also, this is something interesting, is that antibody responses to seasonal influenza vaccines are consistently at least twice as strong in women than men. So what that basically is just saying, again, which is what we talked about, is that the female immune system just launches such a stronger response to pathogens and things that are outside of the body that get inside the body, right? We produce such a stronger response than men, which in many ways is a really good thing because it helps us to have quite a stronger immune system, especially when we need it. But yeah, so those are, those are some of just the basic differences that seem to pop up from just between men and women. In this break, I'm thrilled to announce that we've launched a Patreon to support the podcast as we move into 2021, our fifth year. Join our Patreon. You will get access to exclusive content, hand-printed frameable quotes said by guests on episodes, an opportunity to ask guests follow-up questions, along with our absolute gratitude and some other perks. There are several levels of support to sign up for. At the $5 gear up level and above, you get access to exclusive audio content. I've just recorded some particularly fun stuff for that. Find us at patreon.com slash hearhersports or link from the Patreon page on our website, hearhersports.com. Is there any research on the differences in allergies between men and women? I'm assuming that's sort of similar. 
Yeah, actually. So that's a very interesting question. There's there's a couple of studies that I've read that have discussed this difference. So one thing that can happen is at least allergic responses, boys in childhood seem to have more they seem to be more at risk of developing an allergic response um, and just those kind of typical allergy symptoms. But something changes from adolescence onwards. So once Hmm. puberty begins, boys seem to be less at risk of getting kind of those like allergic responses, asthma, stuff like that, hay fever. But women, girls, young girls becoming young adults, after puberty, they seem to have more problems with asthma, hay fever, things like that. Now, there's some research that is suggesting that sex hormones really have a large role in that. This is where it gets so interesting is that we can see those changes like asthma and hay fever, as I mentioned, start to pop up, uh, especially in early adulthood. But then when we see perimenopause and postmenopausal women, they seem to increasingly suffer from things like asthma, wheezing, hay fever, even before they're dealing with like hormone replacement therapy. So I think what, and I talk about this pretty often, but just the differences between like male and female adults, at least, is mostly hormones, right? Like we have the presence of progesterone, we have the presence of estrogen, and they're constantly changing throughout the month. I think that we can tie this back even to what's going on with the GI tract because hormones in and of themselves, they operate and they do their thing throughout the month. And there's changes that we need to do as far as women's nutrition goes throughout the month in order to help support and work with those cycles. But there's also a lot that the GI tract plays as far as regulating hormones and keeping inflammation to a minimum. So there's likely a lot more going on underneath the surface. But to answer your question as briefly as possible, uh, yes, there is a there does seem to be a bit of a difference. um, And that likely has something to do with hormones. Wow, that's fascinating. I know. <laughs> uh, a question that kept on coming to mind when you were talking is, and in some ways you've answered it, but you know, the immune system definitely goes awry. So, what are other ways, you know, in addition to the autoimmune diseases and also the allergies and things like that? Are there other ways that it just gets messed up somehow? Oh, that's a good question. I think if we we sort of take a, a step back and kind of look at the immune system as a whole, I would say it has a lot more to do with this concept called building resiliency, which I think many listeners have heard. But yeah, so autoimmune is definitely one. And then how the body responds to pathogens is the other. I, I don't know if we have any other examples where the immune system kind of goes awry. I think what we typically try to like look at though, especially when we're looking at the immune system, and I will say from a functional perspective, is that there's aspects where we can kind of get to the bottom of what might be causing the immune system to go haywire and go from there. Because even as we're like looking at COVID, right, and this extreme cytokine storm that seems to be happening, that's not much different than anything else that we've really seen before with the immune system. It's still happening inside of, you know, the innate and the adaptive immune system and how it's responding. It's not different per se, but each type of virus and each type of pathogen and I think this is something we're starting to learn a bit more is that they do have some individual factors to them. 
again, I, I don't really want to go too deep into this, but I do think that there is something that we're starting to see as far as this particular virus, the COVID-19. You keep hearing in the news that it's attacking the heart, you know, cardiovascular system. It's attacking the lungs, the respiratory system. Then it also seems like it might have a neurological component or it might have another different type of component to it. And one research article that I was reading suggested that that might have something to do with the mitochondria that are your ATP, your energy generating cells. They have a lot to do with how a cell and how an organ system functions based on the health of those cells. So they're suggesting that it's possible that this particular virus is just taking advantage of weaknesses, whatever those are within the system. And so again, kind of going back to your question, are there any other areas where the immune system seems to go awry? I think we need to start taking a step back and just thinking about what does the whole body and the immune system need in order to function in a healthy way, to be very resilient. And then you can start to kind of dig deeper per person into where some of those things might not be ideal and then start, you know, digging in from there. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does. And I really like that because it definitely goes into what your specialty is in terms of functional medicine. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so why don't you do that and go into sort of how to maintain a good healthy system or I think I sort of got you off track. So if you want oh, to get back totally to fine. on track. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the gut. Perfect. First, Perfect. And then we'll definitely make sure to wrap this up for listeners about what are different ways that they can boost their immune system and just at least build resiliency. So we'll, we'll definitely get to that at the end. Things that they can easily do right now, today, <laughs> whenever right. they're listening to it. One of the things about the microbiome and the bacteria in the GI tract is something that makes it so interesting is basically that it is fundamental. It is absolutely essential for your immune system, which is crazy because it's basically bacteria that can be good bacteria, can be bad bacteria, and we can have a symbiotic relationship with it. It actually helps us in many ways. One of the things is we've started to see as dysbiosis or bad bacteria has started to pop up. We see it with things like SIBO, like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. We see it with things like uh, irritable bowel syndrome, where more and more people are getting you know, symptoms of gas and they're getting symptoms of bloating and, and they're uh, having pain and they might have frequent constipation or loose stools. There's a lot of different things that are starting to happen with the GI tract that are signs and symptoms of it not being super happy or healthy. And that is kind of leading to other issues down the road. So remember back when we started this podcast, I was talking about the skin and tight junctions and how we have this physical barrier that protects us from pathogens. Well, the inside of the GI tract, that entire tube is actually the outdoor world. It crosses through our whole body <laughs> and it's the outside world, which is so bizarre to think about. But there are reasons why 70% of our immune system is at the level of the gut. It's called the gut-associated lymph tissue. And it's there because that's where we get exposed to a lot of different types of pathogens and things. And so we need to have a good immune response there. However, when we have dysbiosis, so we have bad bacteria that's starting to set up shop or not enough of good bacteria in the right amounts or balance, that's when we start to see things shift and change. Now, if you're also being exposed to things like antibiotics, changes in your diet, and things like high stress, which can be from 
external, you know, basically stress from your lifestyle, work, things like that. It also could be from longer, higher intensity workouts. And more frequently we do that, the more stress that can have on the body by raising the hormone, stress hormone cortisol. But then you can also see internal stress start to affect the body as well. When you have all of that combined or in bits and different pieces, the GI tract lining with the increase of inflammation can start to get a little bit loose. It's kind of like having a cut in your skin, but you won't exactly see a direct hole in your GI tract, right? But what we do start to see is the cells that are sitting really nice, close up tight to each other start to get a little bit loose and a little bit leaky. And this is where people didn't think that leaky gut was a thing and intestinal permeability was really a thing. But we're starting to see now more and more with research that intestinal permeability is a thing. Uh, and actually, there is not an autoimmune disease that doesn't start with intestinal permeability. This is the underlying cause at some point in time that person with autoimmune disease had leaky gut or intestinal permeability. And so it's one place to go back to to start working on healing the body. Essentially, so then what happens, right, is that because of those leaky cells, things that aren't supposed to get into the bloodstream and into your system are now getting into the system. That could be undigested food particles, which can lead to things like cystic acne or food sensitivities or allergies. But you can also see things like lipopolysaccharides, which are supposed to be there, but they can increase inflammation and cause and produce symptoms like depression and anxiety. Very interesting new research mm. there. But lots of different things can end up activating the immune system on the other side. And so that is where this kind of increased systemic inflammation starts to really pop up, like you see achy joints and achy muscles. Uh, sometimes we see skin rashes like psoriasis or rosacea or eczema. It's just this, this process that happens in the body that when the GI tract is, when its defense systems are starting to break down, it leads to further, it can lead to further problems down the road. That's a baseline for how the GI tract and why it's so important with a healthy immune system. Did you say where those holes come from and how they get there? Yeah, so the tight cells. So they're, yeah, they're not exactly holes. Picture putting your hands into a fist and then putting them close tight together so they're just right in front of you. Each of those fists are cells. What happens is that when the cells start to get inflamed and those tissues around them start to get inflamed, now picture kind of moving your fists apart a little bit so that they're not too far apart that you have a full gap, but they're just not touching quite as forcefully as you had before. And what happens is those small little gaps that start to form between those tight cells allow for those little small particles to make their way in between cells. And slowly over time, you can see the cellular lining start to break down. And we see this particularly with like Crohn's or autoimmune celiac, you know, things that really attack the lining of the GI tract. Now, this isn't quite the same, but you can start to see this inflammatory process start to happen across the board with those cells. And then that's how you get that leaky intestinal permeability. Yeah. For sort of a normal person, because I've certainly heard people say that they have a leaky gut, where is that coming from? I mean, they, you know, they don't have Crohn's or something, that, but they do have these issues that are starting to crop up. Yeah, absolutely. So part of it can be from being exposed to several rounds of antibiotics over time. One of the things that I do with my patients when they come in, whether they're, you know, healthy athletes or athletes that, or people who are suffering from a chronic illness, what we do is we do a timeline. We start from birth to where they are currently, and we go through everything we possibly can. We go through what mom might have been exposed to if we can. 
if they were born C-section or, or vaginal birth, and then if they were breastfed, because each of those has an implication and an impact on the child's immune system. And then from there, we break things down. You know, were they exposed to different types of medicines and drugs? Were they exposed to, for women particularly, did they go on birth control at a certain point? Did they, you know, go through rounds of antibiotics and things like that? And that's just one example of where that can affect the microbiome and the bacteria. And then it can just start to break down from there. I should also mention too, is that now it's becoming a lot more common that with antibiotics, they're saying you should take probiotics as well, which is great. And there's obviously a lot of different types of foods like yogurt, sauerkraut, your fermented type foods, kimchi, things like that, kombucha that have natural bacteria in them that when we consume them, they tend to stick around in the gut for a little bit longer. But just probiotics alone especially over the counter, they aren't always doing what we think they're doing. They don't tend to stick around. So it's really important to know that a lot of this depends on the food that we eat. It depends on the different types of fibers and colors um, and colorful foods and the wide variety of foods that we eat, plant-based and animal protein. They all require a different type of bacteria in many ways, and lots of different types of bacteria will follow those foods. And that's how you can get a gut that has a wide variety of different, a wide diversity of different types of bacteria. It's important though, because it's not just about the antibiotics and it's not just about the probiotics. And there's a lot more to it, right? We talked about stress. We talked about, again, nutrition has a very big impact on that. Foods that are low in fiber, like highly processed foods, uh, refined sugars, refined flours, things like that are just brutal on your gut and your bacteria because there's no fiber to them for the most part, um, which makes them easy to digest for some people, but they don't really serve you well in the long run as far as bacteria goes. Um, so anyway. Those are just some different types of examples. Of course, as we mentioned too at the beginning is if you are growing up in an area where there's a lot of bacteria that you could be exposed to versus minimal amounts of bacteria from more sterile environments as we kind of get more into that age. But being outside, you know, being exposed to the sun, those all have impacts on not just our bacteria, but on our health in general or lack thereof, right? I live in the Pacific Northwest, so we don't get to see the sun very often. So those are all good examples of, of where things might start to fall apart and why movement and all these different pieces that we hear about as far as what's healthy for us are important for not just your bacteria, but for your overall health. I live in Cleveland, so there's no sun here in the winter either. Yeah, <laughs> same. same. So we're still, you know, we'll, we'll talk about vitamin D in, in a little bit. Before we get to that, what are some signs that athletes can look for that you know, maybe it's time to think about some of this stuff. And and I'm sure it's individual, but I'm hoping that there's some commonalities. Yeah, thank you for asking that question. So one of the things that when we're talking about athletes specifically, and when we're talking about the immune system, but also gut health and all of that, there was a, an article that I stumbled across where they were looking at the microbiome of an ultra marathon runner. And one of the things that they found is that the gut microbiome actually changed between the tests that they took before and after. And I think that's really important to recognize because 
when there's shifts like that in the bacteria in the gut to that very high intensity or low intensity over a long duration period of time, things are starting to shift within the body. So it is very imperative that we understand that that's happening and also what we can do to support the body so that the athlete can not only optimize their performance while they're in their race or their competition or event or whatever, but keep them training as well on the other side. So one thing to think about is if an athlete is getting sick a lot. There's a nutrient called glutamine that is present in the gut and also other areas of the body, which tends to disappear during um, high physical intense exercise or exercise that's over a long duration. And when glutamine is used up and gone, it tends to lead to illness. So getting sick afterwards, I think there's probably several people that are listeners that may think back and say, oh, yeah, I got sick after I did that one workout and it was it was crazy. That is just one area where um, we can start to see the stuff break down. Also, not only getting sick after working out or certain trainings, but also if you get sick multiple times in a season, that would be a great opportunity to start looking deeper into what's going on in the body. Plus, keeping athletes from getting sick means that they're able to train and they're able to continue doing what they need to be doing to get them to where they're supposed to go, right? So that makes a lot of sense. But then also there's things like, as I kind of mentioned, especially with the gut particularly, but bloating to certain types of foods, things like abdominal pain that may be infrequent but come and go, things like constipation or loose stools that's pretty common, or if there's a vacillation between the two, things like gassiness and even burping for that matter can sometimes be a sign that, especially if it's very, very common and intense, there's potentially issues that might be going there. But then systemically, just looking at things like brain fog, and if we have any types of like rashes, or if there's um, symptoms of like systemic pain, right? So joint pain and muscle aches, things like that. But then injuries as well is another area where there's potentially um, an area to look at, right? So injuries and just thinking about it as sometimes injuries can be from an inflammatory process that's happening in the body. So again, talking a little bit maybe about that, you know, achy joint pain that's happening all over the body, but also injuries can be from like stress fractures. For example, I talk about a lot with their correlation with vitamin D, but of course you need to know if vitamin D is a factor uh, and you need to be testing for those certain types of things. But it is something that I see with a lot of athletes. So I ask them if they are working on some of these basic, you know, health related things that could help prevent them from frequent uh, stress fractures, but also things like uh, joint injuries. I was working with an athlete that had a lot of injuries to the cartilage in her joints. So tendons, ligaments, also those, basically the cartilage that all supports those joints. And she'd had many surgeries and things like that. And what we ultimately ended up finding is that her GI tract just simply wasn't absorbing nutrients very well. She had several issues there. And so that was one of the first places we started was with the gut, because it doesn't matter what type of nutrients I put into the body. If that person can't absorb it well, there's I mean, you can still do it, but shouldn't we just work on where the problem potentially started in the first place? So there's kind of a long-winded answer, I think, but there's so many different types of symptoms that can come up, and it just depends. I mean, we even mentioned allergies for that matter, just a, another sign that the immune system is kind of overactive in a certain way, and it's helpful to kind of look back and see what might be causing those things. With the example that you just gave, what did you do to cure her gut or support her gut? 
Yeah. So one of the things is identifying really what's going on there. So she had small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is just where there's a lot more bacteria in the small intestine than should be there. But then also there was a presence of dysbiosis. So bacteria that was out of balance in the colon too, and inflammation through the gut. So one of the things that we did was uh, work on And I talk about this a lot as far as like the gut goes, why it's not just probiotics, right? You need to remove whatever's causing part of the inflammatory process, which is sometimes getting rid of some of that bacteria that really shouldn't be there. And then it's restoring function back. So that's by using different types of foods to help get bacteria to follow that food into the GI tract, which you do slowly over a period of time. There's probiotics, there's digestive enzymes. And for all of these things, you can test for them. So we can see specifically what that patient needs and uh, go from there. And then once the GI tract is able to function and of course it's functioning, but I mean functioning right. at, a, you know, at its best, course, right? Yeah. So once it's able to do that, keeping in mind that collagen is also very helpful for not only joints, but it's also helpful for the lining of your gut. Some of these things can be genetic. Some of these things can be from just lifestyle in general. Yeah. So that's where we started was with the gut and in, in healing that and getting rid of the SIBO and then moving from there. And then after that, it's a lot of just working on getting different types of nutrients into the system. We ran a nutrient panel, so I'm, I'm aware of which types of nutrients she was deficient in. And part of that is where she lives, but also that she is a pro athlete. So she has a lot of necessity as well for different types of nutrients because of how active she is. So yeah, that's kind of what it looked like. It was a really cool how long did that take? Uh, it took, at least for the GI tract portion, it took two to three months. And then for the rest of that, I'm actually still currently working with her on finishing up the rest of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so it, it takes a couple of months alone, just, and it depends on the person entirely. Unfortunately, healing anything at any time takes time. <laughs> it also takes us a long time to get there too, right? But it just, it, it does. It just takes longer, I think, than we want it to. But if we could be patient in that season and give our body the chance to heal, the outcomes tend to be so much better. Yeah. And can you re-explain what you were talking about getting the bacteria out by having it follow something? Yeah. Okay. So sorry if that was confusing. Okay. So when you have an overgrowth of bacteria, or if you have a presence of bacteria that you don't want to be there, there's a couple of different routes you can go. One is you can use antibiotics. You could use antimicrobials, which are like an herbal form of an antibiotic. They don't differentiate between good or bad bacteria. So if you go that route, it will have an impact on both good and bad bacteria. Things like berberine can be an antimicrobial. Also things like Oil of oregano is another one that is an antimicrobial. So those types of supplements, or if you choose to go an antibiotic route, those will remove the bacteria from the gut. That being said, sometimes with antibiotics, depending on the type of condition that you're treating, can oftentimes lead to that particular condition coming back, which is very interesting. Antimicrobials are are a little bit different. They take a little bit longer than antibiotics, and I think they're a little less harsh on the system, but those antimicrobials seem to be a little bit more effective in the long run. But as I said, they don't differentiate between good or bad bacteria. So then on the other side, so remember I said you have two choices. You can either go that route or you can go the route of eating different types of foods and taking in supplements that are going to try to crowd out the bad bacteria over time. 
So instead of going the route of just trying to kill everything off and then redo the gut, there's an option that you have to eat different types of foods. So what I meant by by what I said is that Every single food that has different colors has different types of fibers. There's different types of bacteria that are needed in order to break down and digest those different types of fibers. So what they're finding is that you can eat a lot of different types of fruits and vegetables and over time grow your microbiome. And in that process with probiotics and some other gut supportive supplements like prebiotics and mucosal builders and things like that. You can over time crowd out that bad bacteria and really support a nice environment for the good bacteria to stay and grow and become very, very, very diverse. Typically, when you do the antimicrobials, you eventually go to that other side, right, of, of trying to make sure that you're redoing the GI tract and making sure that all the different pieces are functioning as well as they can so that that good bacteria really wants to stay. But yeah, that's, that's what I meant is that there's both sides to that. Cool. I like hearing it. It's curable or healable. It, <laughs> Yes. Yeah, it's definitely healable. And it just depends on the person. It depends on how long they've been dealing with these things too. There's a lot of different factors for sure. But it's a really cool thing to be able to see people who have struggled with GI stuff for so long be able to get some relief. It's a really great part of my job. <laughs> yeah, I, I do want to ask about stories. I mean, I suspect that you've had people come in for, I don't know, they need a knee replacement when really it ends up being a gut issue. Yeah, well, that one patient definitely was one of those stories. But yeah, there's been a couple of stories. Let me see if I can pull out a couple of the fun ones. The autoimmune ones are actually a lot of fun for me, especially if you can catch it on the earlier side of things when there isn't too much or ideally before there's any organ damage. Autoimmune, we hear so often that there's really nothing you can do, but there's actually quite a lot that you can do with lifestyle, which we're probably about to go into some of the things that you can do to, yeah. to help your immune system. Um, but there's so much that can be done to help support the immune system. And part of it is just paying attention to what's happening within the immune system and then which system needs to be balanced and what does the body need in order to quit sending out so much inflammation and these inflammatory markers all over the place. So autoimmune is one of those stories that I love because I've had several patients that have gone into remission and still to this day haven't had it come back, which is amazing. Doesn't happen in all cases, but it can happen. And I think that's what's important to to talk about. But then also, gosh, I, I've seen some athletes that have had pretty severe like depression and anxiety that have taken them out of doing their sport. And part of it, sometimes it can actually go back to the gut and other times it's due to other things. And sometimes that requires working with other practitioners to help me that are more specialized. But there's quite a bit that they're looking at now as far as depression and anxiety goes that has a lot to do with the GI tract. So those are some fun, fun little stories that aren't super specific, but that they're fun to work with. That's fascinating about the depression. Yeah, yeah. There's a study actually, just briefly, there's a study out there that shows that basically when they're trying to test new different types of depression or anxiety drugs or medications, they will inject mice with lipopolysaccharides. And what happens is those lipopolysaccharides in their gut create that leaky gut that I talked about, that intestinal permeability. And then they get into the bloodstream where the immune system then launches a response and it triggers inflammatory markers, interleukin-4 and interleukin-6. And then those factors then have been linked to triggering depression and anxiety. So that's when they then administer wow. the, the drug to see if it's effective or not. So I 
I don't want to say that everybody's case is this is this specifically, but I do want to, you know, say that there are sometimes other things that are going on that seem like they're happening in the brain, but they might not be. And mm -hmm. I think exploring those other options is important. Wow, that's fascinating. I know. <laughs> well, why don't we get into what people can do? Yeah. So building resiliency. One of the things that's really, really important is making sure that you move every day. Something we didn't even touch on is your lymph system, but your lymphatic system helps to move a lot of stuff out of the body. It also helps to move a lot of your T cells and all those different types of, because it's not just your blood. There's a whole other system in the body that helps to move things around, uh, either to get rid of or to bring different types of things to certain areas in the body. So your lymph system is very uh, dependent on movement. So that idea of moving 30 minutes every day is really, really important. Uh, and no, it does not have to be CrossFit high intensity style workouts. It can be something as simple as maybe a restorative yin yoga practice to walking to maybe a CrossFit style workout if that's what you have for the day. But movement every day is really, really important, even on those rest days. Again, it can be very gentle. Other things that can be really helpful for building resiliency in the immune system is working on stress. As we sort of mentioned, you know, throughout and scattered through this podcast today, stress is something that is important to have. We need it. It helps us perform really well. It helps us, you know, get here today and do this podcast, right? Stress helps us to do the things that we, we need to do. But the problem is when there's a lot of it and we're not doing enough to help balance it. So things like Commonly right now, you'll hear a lot about like that hot cold therapy with like saunas and cold water uh, that can be really helpful for supporting the adrenals and, and their health. But also thinking about things like adaptogens, which are different types of herbs that help to support the adrenals, but also the axis. So the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis, thinking about things like uh, let's see, there's a lot of different types of mushrooms right now, which are super popular, like cordyceps and reishi and lion's mane. They all are considered adaptogens and they help to balance out that stress system and adrenal axis, right, with the brain. The other thing too with, um, and there's different types, right? There's, there's lots of different types of herbs that people will use in order to help support their immune system, like ashwagandha, um, lots, 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 lots. So then there's also antioxidants, and those are things like vitamin C. Other antioxidants are like vitamin A and vitamin E, and you'll find a lot of those antioxidants in colorful foods, blueberries, pomegranates, blackberries, those dark colorful foods are usually super dense with antioxidants. And what they do is they go and they scavenge. They scavenge out those reactive oxygen species that sometimes our body makes in the process of doing certain processes that keep you living, but then also what we might be exposed to in the air that we breathe, or again, you know, ways that we cook our food or pathogens, things like that. Those antioxidants tend to be really important. Um, and that's why I can't really stress enough that it is part of a healthy practice to eat a lot of different types of fruits and vegetables. And if you can eat seasonally, there's some basics there that are really great. Berries in the summer, for example, versus like squash in the winter. To make that maybe even a little bit more applicable, what I try to get my patients to do is think about eating seven to eight servings of fruits and veggies a day. A serving could be like a cup 
of raw veggies or half a cup of cooked veggies. So it's not that crazy. If you had like a decently large salad with a lot of different types of veggies in it for like lunch with some chicken on top would be probably all of the different types of vitamins and minerals and different types of fruits and veggies that you need for the day. But if you can balance that out throughout, it's a really great practice. And then to try to get two different types of fruits and veggies in per week, every week. So keep cycling through all the different kinds. The other thing too that we can think about as well, especially when we're talking about nutrients specifically, is things like vitamin D, vitamin C. Vitamin D specifically, yes, we've heard that it's very helpful for your bones, but it can also modulate the innate and adaptive immune system response. And we're starting to see it pop up quite a bit more, which still is uh, who I don't really know for sure. I don't think anybody really knows for sure if it could be helpful with COVID or not. There's there's studies that are suggesting that for sure, but this is so new to us, I think, in many ways that it's hard to say yes or no. But vitamin D alone does have quite an impact on the immune system. So it's helpful to make sure that you have enough of it. And typically speaking, people have lower levels in the summer because they've just gone through the winter where their levels should be higher because they spent time in the sun over the summer. But uh, for people like you and I, who maybe don't see the sun as much for as long, it can be helpful to take a vitamin D supplement when necessary. And also, if you're not sure, you can go to your doctor's office and ask them to test your vitamin D levels, which is not a bad thing to do every once in a while. Also, things like vitamin C seem to help support the immune system as far as both the innate and adaptive immune system. So different types of vitamins and minerals definitely have an impact. The question is, is can you get a lot of it from your food, which I always try to get people to do. Think about getting all of these things from whole foods versus from basically just supplements. Yes, I like supplements. They help to fill in the gaps, but whole foods are going to have so much more than just the one vitamin. They're going to have the enzymes to help you break it down, which can help in other areas. And of course, they're food, right? So you get to eat food <laughs> and get all the fibers into your gut too. So I really like that. Of course, remembering to drink a lot of water because your lymphatic system really needs water in order to get things moving well. And then sleep, working on aiming for like anywhere between seven to nine hours is considered healthy, but it's not just about the amount of time. It's about the quality of sleep. So looking for, if you can, if you can get a device that can test for your sleep and how you're sleeping, your quality of sleep every once in a while, what you want to aim for is like five to seven disturbances is normal. It pulls you out of that deep sleep and kind of gets you into more of an awake state. But anything more than that, though, isn't optimal. So these are just different ways that we can optimize our system and something that everybody that's listening to this can do today, like whenever they're listening to this, these are all things that you don't need to work with a practitioner on or anything like that. They're just things that you can you can start doing now. Over time, it's the best way to, to build your immune system resiliency. And it doesn't take long. Uh, you just have to get started. You talked a lot about testing. Do you encourage people to get sort of baseline tests or like if somebody out there is thinking maybe I should get things looked at because everything's not optimal, what would you have them do? Yeah. So I suggest everybody has a baseline, whether they have chronic symptoms going on or not, because having that baseline is a great place to start if something starts to go awry. 
But also too, especially if we're just looking at optimizing health and trying to save our resources and not, you know, I, in my opinion, waste a bunch of money on different types of supplements and things. If you can get a test that shows what your levels are, then that can lead you down a road to just know more about what's going on in your body. For example, with B vitamins particularly, they require something called a methyl donor in order to be active in the system and to do their job. And so if you have a baseline that shows that B vitamins are on the lower side, it might be beneficial to look a little bit deeper and see if you're the type of person that always needs to make sure that they're getting methylated B vitamin supplements. There's just some things to think about there. But yes, testing to me, I think is a very, very good thing. It's just there's a lot of people who also, in my opinion, overtest. So first off, testing should always try to illuminate where we already suspect there's an issue and it should help us to confirm what that issue is versus just ordering a ton of labs to see what's going on and then make our diagnoses from there. It's the same thing with x-rays and MRIs and all of that. We usually have an idea of what we think is going on and then we order the lab, right? We don't want to just order the x-ray and see what's happening because it's exposing a patient potentially to x-rays and to radiation that's unnecessary. So we really want to make sure we have a place to start before we start just ordering a bunch of labs. And when it comes to like gut panels and hormone panels and nutrient panels and all this stuff, I like to see a gut panel and I like to see a nutrient panel. Some nutrients you can get through your medical doctor and potentially your insurance will cover it. Other ones, not so much. Last thing, so for athletes that I'm working with that we're trying to really make sure that all cylinders are firing as best as we can possibly get them, I really like to see a gut panel and I really like to see a nutrient panel that uses both urine and blood serum so that I can see all different types of vitamins and minerals and then we track that over time just to make sure that they have everything that they can possibly need because nutrition, minerals, vitamins, they are the foundation that makes every single process in your body function. You have to have them. And so when there are gaps, that's when things start to fall apart. So I like to see where those are and then help that athlete do this specifically for them so that they can function as best as they possibly can. This is all so fascinating. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> sure. But before you go, you know, you're an athlete yeah. yourself. So, you know, like, what are you working on before the race? And and I mean that both in your training, but also in terms of, you know, improving your resilience. Yeah. So currently right now, I'm about to start on ramping into, you know, really what would be training season. It's been sort of like off season, preseason ish um, over the last couple of months. Um, but the Coeur d'Alene Ironman is in June. And so starting in January, January, February time, it'll be like four or five months where I'll get pretty strict with what I eat and making sure that a lot of the things that I can control are controlled. So things like sleep are really important. Not every day has to be perfect. But the goal is to definitely make sure that um, I'm getting enough sleep because recovery is extremely important. Um, things like water is another one that I'll be really focusing on making sure I'm staying hydrated with for me and my weight around 70 to 80 ounces a day is, is about normal. And then also food. And this is where my method and way of doing things, especially when I start to get closer and we start to on ramp up, 
It's reducing those inflammatory foods like sugar, alcohol, refined carbs, and, and refined oils, processed foods. Those things aren't typically, you won't find them in my diet very much anyway. But, you know, things like alcohol, things like that, they, they definitely tend to creep their way in over the holiday season for sure. But a lot of those will be gone just because I try to keep inflammation to a minimum as training ramps up because it keeps that inflammation down in my body as best as I can. And then I support from there with different types of supplements, things like that. Um, so those are the big ones. Again, also in building resiliency to answer that, that last part of your question is alcohol for sure is one alcohol and sugar they will take down your immune system. So they are ones that are really good to stay away from anyway, um, as much as we can. Of course, we don't have to just like be completely restrictive with it. But I think if we can adopt a mindset or a thought process around food that what we put in our bodies does actually have an impact. And yeah, I know that it's tempting and we have all these different types of, <laughs> I don't know, ads and images and things that are constantly telling us to eat these things and do this stuff and all that and whatever. But there's still a basic understanding that we need to have and that food really does impact our health and how our body functions. So I will still be doing a lot of those things and trying to manage that as best as possible, especially with the added stress that will start, you know, being added onto my system from training means that I need to work a little bit harder on some of the other things outside of training, recovery, how I do the rest of the day, making sure I'm eating really nutritious and supportive food and enough of it so that everything is working in that direction and I can hopefully keep my resiliency up and we'll, we'll just see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> there is always that. Yeah. <laughs> Where are you getting your carbohydrate calories if you're limiting, you know, more refined uh, carbs? Oh, great question. So I eat a lot of like rices and different types of rices. So wild grain rice, red rice, black rice, quinoa, things like that. I eat a lot of sweet potatoes and potatoes. Those are other sources as well. And then I have a lot of other, you know, kind of starchy veggies like squashes, mm, butternut squash, acorn squash, things like that, that can be pretty high. And then I do supplement too. So I have, you know, a sports drink, things like that, that do get some carbs even higher into my system. But yeah, I generally just use whole food sources, which for the most part works pretty well. And before we leave, I always ask, did we get to everything you wanted to get to? Or is there oh, something we yes. missed? No, I don't think so. We we pretty much went as deep as I think listeners would probably like to get. <laughs> well, I found it completely fascinating and it's always great to talk about the gut because I don't know, it's just the base and I love that you I love your attitude about that and your theories. Oh, thank you so much. It was great to be here. I really I, I enjoyed every minute of it. Great to have you here as always and keep listening. Thanks for spreading the word. The audience is growing. I'd love to hear your experiences with building resiliency or leaky gut type symptoms. This winter, I've been suffering from allergies a lot, so I'm curious about your stories. Send an email to elizabeth at hearhersports.com. You can support the podcast by joining our new Patreon at patreon.com slash hearhersports or by telling your sporty pals about us, signing up for our newsletter at hearhersports.com or buying books using our bookshop page, hearhersports.com slash books. There's a really great growing list of books suggested by guests over there, so check it out. As always, find links to things talked about in the episode in the show notes, including how to find Dr. Lauritsen. Stay up to date on upcoming episodes by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
While 44% of athletes are women, only 4% of the media coverage is about women. Hear Her Sports aims to shift the scale while inspiring women to be their best. Keep healthy. Until next time, this is Elizabeth Emery for Hear Her Sports. Bye-bye. Thanks again for having me. It's so much fun to talk about this stuff. And every time I do, I'm, I just, I always think about, you know, the listeners and I'm like, gosh, if I could just say one thing that just helps them, you know, learn more or want to make that shift to doing just that one other thing that they can do, that, that would be the best. So hopefully they enjoy it. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flojo. Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionu. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network.